And amen. It's good to, again, it's good to see everybody. We wasn't able to hear everybody sing, but I could see everybody singing, and that's still better than not seeing anybody. So um, we marvel at this, at technology. I'm grateful for it, and we're doing the best that we can do, right? Um, so I want to begin, of course, uh, tonight, uh, as I did last week, and say uh, that um, everyone is able of course, you have the freedom to exercise your freedom to either take notes or not take notes. Um, the outline is in the back of the bulletin, so you're going to have to, if you didn't download that and print it, you may have to come back to it, but you can at least follow along. Um, I want this time, as as weird as it is, I mean, this is as different for me as it is you, as um, I'm, I'm sitting down instead of standing and all these other things, and so we'll see how this goes, but... I still hope that tonight, uh, as we kind of walk through this story, that we will, um, we will have or develop that expulsive power of a new affection that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Um, and so my prayer is, is the same as it has been, that our joy uh, will be both deeper and more lasting uh, as, as we walk through this story and having gone through this story. And so uh, before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Uh, Father, we, um, we come now to preaching and teaching of your word, uh, and it, again, it is very different in this context, and so would you uh, help us? Um, we pray uh, your word, though, though our circumstances change and though uh, they are very different, your word never changes. Your word remains authoritative and inerrant and sufficient, and so I would ask that because of that, that even now, in this different time, that uh, you would use your word uh, to drive any doubt of dark away out of our hearts, and that you would, uh, in its place, in place of that doubt, that you would cultivate a new and a fresh, a, a new affection for Jesus. Um, may we come to know more about him uh, and his coming and what that means for us. And we do pray that that joy. You would cultivate a joy within us that's deeper and more lasting. So bless us now as we look to your word. Uh, use me as you see fit, uh, even this evening, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So I want to start with a question uh, in this first part of our outline, and that is, what do we get when we combine an astronomical phenomenon a, with, with a significant governmental decree and a supernatural biological conception, right? A rare astronomical phenomenon with a significant governmental decree and a supernatural biological conception. And there are four things, really. It's really one thing, but... Um, I'm going to break this down a little bit. First, we get a historic providence-displaying birth. Uh, and that providence-displaying birth occurs according to the first cause, which is, of course, God's decree. Uh, and yet it works itself out through second causes, like a Roman Caesar as well as an Israelite innkeeper. And how that happens is beyond our comprehension, but... It, it has happened and it should 
reassure us and bolster our faith. I mean, that, that's our prayer, right? Um, secondly, we get a historic calendar-altering birth that determined the dating of all historic events prior to it and all events that followed it. Uh, the third thing we get is a prophecy-fulfilling birth. Uh, we read in Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And then finally, we get a historic redemption securing birth. And what I mean by that is that the plan of redemption would have faltered and been unsuccessful without this birth. It was the birth that led to the life. It was the life that led to the death. And it was the death that led to the burial, the burial that led to the resurrection, the resurrection that led to the ascension. So without the birth, we have no substitute and we have no uh, obedience, and we have no satisfactory sacrifice, and therefore no salvation. So you would think with such an immense birth, right? We're talking about the immensity of the birth. If, if the birth was that immense, you would think that it would come with great pomp and circumstance, uh, but it didn't. Uh, in the words of a I think it was a pretty popular Christian contemporary song back in the 90s. There was no crown, no throne, no big parade, no fanfares, uh, no fanfares uh, displayed and, or played, and no jubilant display. Um, actually, the only parade was a very lonely parade of two that lasted for about 80 to 85 miles, depending upon the route that they chose. Um, from the story that Grant read earlier, we know that Joseph and Mary are married. And I say that even though Luke says they're betrothed, and we can gather that they are already married because they're making this trip together by themselves. And we also know from Matthew's account that she remained a virgin and the marriage had not been consummated or was not consummated until after the birth. So she remained a virgin up until... Uh, and beyond the birth. So they're still, they're, they're married. It just hasn't been consummated. But the trip wasn't a honeymoon, right? They are honoring and submitting to the governing authorities. They are um, submitting to the powers that be. Uh, Caesar Augustus wanted to make sure that he was getting the money that he believed that he deserved. And so the best way to do that was to put forth a, a census and so this edict went out and everybody was to go to their hometown so that they could be counted, so that they could be assessed, and um, not only assessed, but that their taxes could be collected. And so Joseph and Mary leave Nazareth. They head to Bethlehem. That was Joseph's hometown because he was a descendant of David. Mary didn't necessarily have to go, but being newly married and as well as very close to giving birth, uh, she decides to go or, or they decide that they need to go and take the trip together. Um, they may have met others along the way because others would have been traveling, um, but if they had spoken to anyone, no, no one that they spoke to would have known that they were in the, in the presence of royalty. Uh, so 
Joseph um, probably, more than likely, walked while Mary rode a donkey, and we can imagine that she was very grateful for that transportation. Um, But you can imagine even the slow pace that they would have been on because of her condition, as well as the the fact that they were traveling uphill. Uh, She would have felt every step, uh, every stumble, every change of uh, from, from the donkey as well as the ground beneath her. Uh, her balance would have been very difficult to maintain on the back of that donkey. Um, and probably by the end of it, very, very sore from, from trying to stay on top of that animal. And, and there's really no way for us to know how many days that they were on the road, but the trip was long enough that by the time they get to Bethlehem, uh, there is no room, either private or semi-private. Um, the only place left is an animal stall. And we don't know if that was a, a part of or adjacent to or underneath an inn or a single room home. Um, it may have been a cave, a shepherd's cave that was uh, down the road a bit. But whatever it was, we know it was full of animals and the odor as well as the just the 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 air, the stale air itself would have been, probably would have been overwhelming because there wasn't going to be time to take care of the animals because of the number of people in town that had to be taken care of. So the floor, uh, the, the tile, let's imagine a, a tile floor, a cushion bed and feather pillows that would have all been a part of a palace are not going to be found and are not going to be present for this king and his family. Right, they're, they're left with dirt, hay, and rocks. What Mary's son deserved was, and, and what he received was diametrically, they were diametrically opposed to one another. The only thing that was going to eclipse the ignobility of his birth would have been the disgrace and shame of his eventual death. Now, while her accommodations were less than desirable, um, they were better than or more bearable than on the back of the donkey. But it wouldn't have taken long for her to be off the donkey where her discomfort would have begun or, or grown, okay? Uh, because as any mother can attest, uh, an aching back and swollen feet, as well as body blows from the flailing arms and legs of the child that was doing somersaults within her would have made comfortable almost impo- or would have made comfort almost impossible. So to say that the birth was easy would not be true. Uh, we're not given an exact time when her contractions would have started. They may have started while they were traveling. They may have started while she was there. Um, but regardless of when they started, as time went by. Uh, they would have grown closer together. And as they grew closer together, they would have grown more intense. And she would have responded by getting louder. Um, To think that this was a silent night would um, not be accurate, okay? And her breathing, of course, would lead to pushing. And that pushing would lead to exhaustion. And when the baby finally arrives... um, we have, we have to understand that this is a natural childbirth. So when the baby arrives, he's covered with amniotic fluid. The amniotic fluid is in his ears and in his nose. He's got a cone-shaped head. Uh, the pigment of his skin is different. And uh, he's connected to his mother uh, by an umbilical cord. And there's no midwife around. So Joseph has got to do this on his own. 
Um, he's got to cut the cord. He's got to clean Jesus up. Um, he's got to, uh, more than likely, I mean, it's possible maybe Mary's mother packed the swaddling cloths that she was going to uh, need to wrap him up. Uh, but if, she, if those aren't present, Joseph's got to cut his own robe to wrap the baby tightly with his arms by his side, uh, to provide some type of physical and emotional security after this intense arrival. And then Joseph takes, takes Jesus and lays him in this trough, this feeding trough within this stall. Um, now, uh, all of, of all the literary accounts, and I'm sure you've read, read several of them like I have, but of all the literary accounts that that talk about what happened after that. You know, we're just left with the story here of he lays him in a manger. What happened after that? Of all those accounts, Ken Geyer's is my favorite. And um, it's a little longer, and it's because it speaks to our last point that we'll get to in a minute. But And it's a little longer than I usually would like, and, and maybe under different circumstances I wouldn't read it, but I, I want to read it uh, for us tonight. He says this, Joseph having laid him in the manger... He says, then he cries. Mary reaches uh, for the shivering baby. She lays him on her chest and his helpless cries subside. His tiny head bobs around on the unfamiliar terrain. This will be the first thing the infant king learns. Mary can feel his racing heartbeat as he gropes to nurse. Deity nursing from a young maiden. Could anything be more puzzling or more profound? Joseph sits exhausted, silent, and full of wonder. The baby finishes and sighs, the divine word reduced to a few unintelligible sounds. Then for the first time, his eyes fix on his mother's. Deity straining to focus. The light of the world is squinting. Tears pool in her eyes. She touches his tiny hand and hands that once sculpted mountain ranges clings to her finger. She looks up at Joseph and through a watery veil their souls touch. He crowds closer cheek to cheek with his betrothed. Together they stare in awe at the baby Jesus whose heavy eyelids begin to close. It's been a long journey. The king is tired. And so with barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity without protocol and without pretension. Where you would have expected angels, there are only flies. Where you would have expected heads of state, there were only donkeys, a few haltered cows, a nervous ball of sheep, a tethered camel, and a furtive scurry of curious barn mice. Except for Joseph, there was no one to share Mary's pain or her joy. Yes, there were angels announcing the Savior, Savior's arrival, but only to a band of blue-collar shepherds. And yes, a magnificent star shone in the sky to mark his birthplace, but only three foreigners bothered to look up and follow it. Thus, in the little town of Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. Now, I want us for a minute, as we, um, as we kind of move to a close, I, I want us to look back at verse six. 
It says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, the time had come, and that means much more than uh, she had been pregnant for nine months, and now her time was up and she was going to give birth. When, when Luke says that the time had come, he's saying that the time of fulfillment was at hand. And the birth, what we, what we learn is that the birth was intentional. And we've been talking about that, but the birth was intentional. The time had come for God to fulfill his promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The time had come for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17. The time had come for God to fulfill his promise with da- for, uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7. And the time had come for God to fulfill his promise to his people in the new covenant that we find in Jeremiah 31. The time had come for the suffering servant and the warrior king Uh, that we read about in Isaiah, who would be the wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace to arrive. It was time for him to arrive. But while that fulfillment has come and is already, it's also not yet. It is also yet to come. And so the fulfillment has been initiated and has been and even today continues for us to be experienced, but we do await the consummation. We, we await the consummation of those promises and their ultimate full and final fulfillment when Christ returns. When he returns not to save, but, but to judge both the living and the dead and to establish the new heavens and the new earth, that time and place when we will be with him, we will be like him, and we will see him as he is. And the question we ask is, why, uh, why come as a baby? Why, why as a human? Why as a baby? Why come uh, the way he came through a virgin birth and uh, you know, basically unannounced to the world around him at, at that particular time? And I think there are three things that, that I would like for us to think about. Um, it all transpired that way to identify, to exemplify, and to satisfy, okay? First, to identify. In the words of Chris Rice, another Christian contemporary song, he says, or when he, he, he sings, he says uh, that Christ came and took on our injured flesh and walked our, walked our sod, right? And he did so, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He set his glory aside so that he could draw near to us, so that he could uh, dwell with us and among us as one of us, and he did it all for us. And it was his incarnation that allowed him to know and to understand our joys and our sorrows, our aches and our pains, our disappointment, our scorn, our mistreatment, our rejection and abandonment, and even our temptation that are all a part of our frail humanity. And it's what made the difference between him simply being compassionate and being merciful, right? He, he, he showed mercy 
and is able to show us mercy because of what he experienced. It was important for you and for me to be able to say our Savior knows how we feel. But more importantly than that, it was important that we as his people in the midst of our aches and pains and disappointment and scorn and mistreatment and rejection and abandonment and even our temptation could say, but his was so much more than ours. And he did so and experienced those things for us. And we can even make that specific and say that he did that for our sake and he did that for my sake. He did that for your sake. To exemplify, the ignobility of Christ's birth from, from the nowhere status of his mom to the anonymity of the uh, and, and, and the lack of pomp and circumstance at his uh, arrival, uh, the surroundings of the animal stall in which he was born, and, and the ordinary nature of his human birth and being a human baby uh, places before us a very specific example. And it puts before us an example of a life that in many cases we're taught today uh, to avoid and overcome. Rather than striving for celebrity status or to do epic things, um, Jesus' birth not only gives us permission, but it sets the expectation that it is okay to live lives in obscurity and to be unnoticed and to be overlooked. It, it provides for us an example to be um, Faithful in the little things, in the behind the scenes things that never get recognized. His birth says greatness is achieved uh, not by grabbing and, and taking through, um, through power, through some type of power grab, but, but, to, but is experienced through submission and service. Strength and power shouldn't be used to control and take advantage of others for our own gain, but that, that strength and power should be controlled and restrained. It's a matter of meekness. It's Christ who exemplifies this from his life to his death. It was Christ who exemplified what it means to love. He came not to be served, but to serve and to ultimately give his life as a ransom for many. And that leads to the last point, um, to satisfy. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says it's impossible uh, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We needed a human being to do what we could not as humans do for ourselves. We needed a human to be our substitutionary sacrifice and to pay for our sins. We also needed a human to live a life of perfect obedience, fulfilling the law, again, in our place and on our behalf. And it was Jesus' birth, it was his incarnation that made both of those things possible. The eternal son took on flesh and became the God-man to satisfy that which was needed. And he did so for us. And as I said when we began, the birth led to the life, and the life led to the death, the death led to the burial, the burial led to the resurrection, the resurrection led to the ascension. And so without you know, no birth, there's no substitute, there's no obedience, there's no satisfactory sacrifice, and therefore there's no salvation.
We needed him to come in this way. And brothers and sisters, God, when we think about this, when we think about the story as we've come to this place and as we move into it next week, we need to remember that God has drawn near to us. Remember our study from Leviticus. Right? God has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's made himself, God has made himself accessible to us. And I pray that we would make room for him. Christmas will come and go before we know it. We're 10 days away and Christmas will come and go before we know it. And if we don't consciously take the time to slow down and turn off the noise and consider the significance of his birth, we'll miss it. And life is going to come and go. Life will come and go before we know it, right? It, it, it happens in the blink of an eye. And so my encouragement is that we would make room for Christ in the time that we have, right? To make room for him in our lives, uh, in our families, in our conversations with our families, in the conversations with our friends and with those in the workplace. I pray that we would make room for him when we sit in our homes and we walk by the way and when we lie down and when we rise. May we make room for him today and every day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.